Hi, welcome to the Art and Science of Learning, the podcast that digs deeper in how we learn, so that in today's accelerated world, we can learn better and enjoy it more. I'm your host, learning specialist, Dr. Kinga Petrovai. Every week, I discuss aspects of learning with academics, practitioners, and individuals with unique learning journeys to inform and inspire how you design learning into work and life. This week is Neurodiversity Celebration Week, and to mark the occasion, I'm joined in this episode by the United Kingdom's former health secretary, who is working to improve the outcomes for all children with dyslexia and neurodiversities. The Right Honourable Matt Hancock is the Member of Parliament for West Suffolk in the UK and served as Secretary of State for Health and Social Care up until last year. Matt is proud to be dyslexic, but that has not always been the case. Going through school without knowing he had dyslexia, Matt spent all his school years focusing on math and science subjects, trying to avoid anything that needed more than a few sentences. When he was studying for his bachelor's degree at the University of Oxford, his tutor told him, The problem is, Matt, you can talk, but you can't write. He was one of the lucky ones as he was sent to be diagnosed and received fantastic support. Now, Matt is introducing the Dyslexia Screening Bill in the UK Parliament, which calls for all children to be screened for the condition before the end of primary school, and also to provide training on neurodiversity to all teachers. Thank you very much, Matt, for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Kinga, for having me. I'm really thrilled to be talking to you about a topic that's really important on this Neurodiversity Week, and that's dyslexia, both your personal and also now the bill that you're introducing into Parliament. I mean, you have a lot of personal experience with it. Before we jump into the bill and to talk about what that means, I'd really love you to tell me a little bit more about how you were impacted by dyslexia while you were in school. What did that really feel like? Yeah, well, this is why I feel so strongly about the bill and about um, making a, a change for other people who are going through the experience I had. Um, I regarded myself as just bad at languages, bad at English. And all the way through school, you know, I knew that I had a problem. I knew that when I read, I transpose letters. Um, and so, you know, I'm, so I'm a slow reader. Um, and I got through it at school by just moving away from from words-based subjects, if you like. And fortunately for me, I'm decent enough at maths um, and that got me to university. Uh, and at university, at the end of my first term, my tutor took me to one side and said, well, you're, you're perfectly good when we talk, but you can't get it down on paper. I think you're dyslexic. I went for an assessment. And that was a real moment for me that it made it, made it all make sense. I think that's such a familiar story for people who experience dyslexia, both the fact that you found ways to compensate and to hide the languages, which I'm sure you have a lot of strategies in which you try to move away from the languages. Yeah. Yeah. And also what you just said, what your tutor told you when you were when you were studying at Oxford. I think a lot of people hear that who are dyslexics. How did you react to that? Like, how, how did that how did that make you feel? Oh, well, it was a penny drop moment. It was a, it was it was really positive, you know, because for two reasons. The first is I was lucky to be at you know, one of the best universities in the world. And they had a brilliant education department who essentially retaught me how to read and write. So it had a direct effect on my ability. And from there, you know, I've ended up in a profession in politics that's all about words and all about um, the use of, of language. Um, but the second more, I think, deeper, more profound impact was on my self-esteem. 
you know, fortunately, again, you know, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm, I'm really aware of the fact that because I could do the maths, I could get to a good university. I got in on, a, on, on an interview rather than a, an exam because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have got in if I'd had to go through an exam. Uh, nevertheless, I grew up thinking I was bad at languages and bad with words. And the impact of finding out that it was a neurological problem that could I could get support to uh, to work a way around, but it was deeper than that. You know, it was about about your self esteem, and I hear this so often from people who've been identified, especially if they're identified late with dyslexia. You know, they just thought they were stupid, and then there's an explanation, and then you can do something about it, uh, but you can also feel feel confident. And now I have a love of language and uh, use and and, uh, and and beauty and variety. My 16-year-old self would never possibly have imagined that, that I could have that because I just thought that it was something I was rubbish at. Mm, that's such a life-changing experience. I mean, both the confidence and the strategies. I mean, with the confidence, you're able to actually say, I can, I can do this. I just need the right strategies in place yeah. rather than thinking, I'm just not capable. And that yeah. makes such a world of a difference for a child, but also for an adult. Uh, but I'm, I'm curious. I mean, I know there's a lot of different skills and strategies that you were taught on how to manage, manage this. But can you just touch on maybe one or two of the most important ones for you? Well, um, the first thing is that I was, I, I was retaught how to read, right? That made a big difference to break down a word. Uh, phonetically and then to put it together as a picture you know I still have the problem that I'll read a word and I'll transpose two letters but now context can almost invariably solve that problem uh, mm -hmm. not always um, I also I, I'm, I'm terrible with new words whether that's a, uh, a name or a, or a word I haven't come across before you know as, as health secretary I had to announce that dexamethasone had they discovered that dexamethasone could reduce the and the likelihood of dying from COVID. And I had to, I sat down for, for half an hour to learn this word because I have an oral problem with that as well. If you say to me a word, I won't be able to repeat it back to you. It takes a huge amount of, I had to parse it right down to the uh, phonetics and build it up again. And now I recognize dexamethasone as if uh, a picture, mm. um, as, a, um, a, as a word. Um, so I have strategies. And then, you know, professionally, I once had the opportunity to thank the man at Microsoft who developed Spellchecker. Right. And I'm yes. sure that if they hadn't <laughs> developed Spellchecker in the late 90s when I was starting my career, you know, it would have been a, a, an awful lot harder because there is now technology that you can use. Um, and obviously, you know, it's now legion, you know, autocorrect and the rest of it, um, which just makes so much easier. That's an interesting point, because I think so often people who have trouble spelling and have trouble learning to spell, they automatically assume that it's a reflection of their intelligence. And that is absolutely not the case. Right. I mean, these are. That's right. There's no correlation. Mm -hmm. between Exactly. So very important to diagnose. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and of course, you can learn how to read better. You, you do need to put more effort into it than most normal people. Um, with straight line thinkers as I, um, as, I, as I think of them. And so you can sort of mitigate directly, if you like, by putting more effort into that. But at the same time, you can mitigate indirectly through things like use of technology. Uh, and then lots of different ways. You know, when I was in government, I would ask my private office, 
when when I had a big thick document to read to give me every every single document they give me in my red box at night. They had to write a one page summary on the top, and then I could decide whether I wanted to read the document properly and take that decision, or if it wasn't controversial. Uh, and I didn't have a particular interest in it, whether I delegate it to a to a junior minister. You know, now that's a very specific mitigation for secretaries of the state, which I appreciate is quite a, <laughs> quite a niche um, uh, line of work. But it's uh, nevertheless, you know, there were the, there's a whole series of things that you can do around your own life to deal with the neurological challenges that you have. Yes, very important to understand how you learn and how you work. And then you can put all the things in place that really help you be at your best. And as you said, I mean, yes, you had a, a summary, but that equally, they say that if, if you have dyslexia, then you should scan the headlines, the different chapters, and make sure you get an idea for the big picture of what you're going to read. And so that's a very important thing to have that big picture summary of what you're reading. Yeah. So putting those in place for you and, and the people around you as well to understand is, is incredibly important. So thank you for sharing that. You have said that you spent much of your career hiding your dyslexia. And yeah. I think that's really a big thing for people in their careers about how they deal with these, these situations. So tell me a bit about why you felt it was important to hide your yeah. dyslexia. You know, um, I, I hadn't really thought about this until I started talking about it a lot recently. And it was really, I had a sense of shame about my dyslexia. Mm. Now, I now, I now know that there's absolutely no reason to have that. But right. I think it's also quite common. Yes. Um, and it's common to other disabilities, actually. I regard neurodisabilities as, you know, the last bridge in the drive to make sure that diversity in all its forms is celebrated and if you think about it over the last couple of decades we've come a long way on different forms of diversity being celebrated in society um, whether that's um, you know ethnic background or gender diversity or, or, or for instance sexual orientation um, neurodiversity is the is the next battle in that to support and give equal uh, weight in society to people who think differently and I felt a sense of I felt a sense of shame. That's what it was. And I described, I remember describing at the time as I was coming out as dyslexic. And somebody said, oh, you can't, you know, you can't say that. I don't want to upset people who are, uh, who are, who are gay, who describe coming out as, as gay. But actually, then, on the contrary, is somebody explained to me that it's exactly the same sensation. It's the feeling that you would be uh, downtrodden or um, held back or worse because of a way in which you are different to most people in society uh, and and instead we should celebrate this uh, diversity and we should celebrate people for who they are Absolutely. so although it is of course different and the of course the um, the historical challenges that people with um, neuro, neurodiverse conditions including dyslexia is far less than many other um, aspects of diversity like sexual orientation you know I'm not saying that the history has been the same or nearly as bad but what I am saying is that the, the confidence that you should have to be proud is the same sensation yes so what happened to me was that I was made uh, a member of the cabinet uh, by the prime minister and I was explaining to my new private secretary this um, this one page rule that I had uh, when I was uh, in ministerial office and he said to me my new private secretary said um, but you've got to tell people. 
he said, I'm dyslexic too. Oh, and you really? can get out there and say, you can make it to the cabinet if you're dyslexic, because so many people will benefit from you saying that. I said, no, mm. but this is, my, this is my secret. I haven't told anybody. He said, yeah, but you've made it to the cabinet, right? So now's the moment. Um, you can, you, you know, it's not going to hold you back if you talk about it. And he was dead right. Uh, and the response I got when I first talked about it and went public was, was just overwhelming and incredibly positive. And um, uh, the funny thing was that another member of the British cabinet at the time then came out as dyslexic afterwards. Uh, and he, like me, had been hiding it throughout his whole career. So, you know, we dyslexic cabinet ministers are like London buses. <laughs> so none come along for ages, then two come along at once. It was a, you know, it was a really, um, it was a really affirming moment. And I've had so many people write to me since then. That was a few years ago, since then saying, Thank you for speaking out and speaking up. That's really great. That is so important because, of course, by you talking about it and really being very public about it, you don't want people to wait until they have reached a certain point in their career and feel that they can talk about this. You, Of yeah. course, we want to make sure that we can talk about it all the time and and have this be a very much an accepted and normal part of life. Yeah. I found it interesting the way you said you didn't even realize that you were hiding it. And I think that yeah. probably is so true that you build these strategies and you build this internal world as you grow up that you don't even realize when you're an adult that you're really hiding this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I knew that I was not, I didn't want to talk about it in public. Mm-hmm. I, what I didn't realize was that the reason for that was a, misplaced sense of shame mm-hmm. right. um and it was only once that penny dropped that i now was incredibly nervous talking about it you know the first time i talked about it actually in first first i talked about it privately within government to the uh the civil service um neurodiversity group and um I, when i first said the words at a podium you know um i'm i'm dyslexic i was incredibly nervous because it's very very personal Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got this overwhelming, uh, warm, positive response. Uh, so then that persuaded me to to go uh, to go public, and and I'm very glad that I did. Um, but you know, it also has propelled me to want to do something about it on the policy side. Mm-hmm. You know, um, because if I can help one other person who, uh, who who went through that experience, and especially those who weren't lucky like me, right, who either yes. didn't have the support you know it just didn't get that um weren't identified didn't have someone who recognized it you know we know that uh, over half of prisoners in the uk in in the prison system are dyslexic i'm acutely aware of the fact that for all the successful dyslexics who you hear about you know there are more for whom they don't get the support that they need and they end up in a, in a in a very bad place, and and so you know, it's a real mission for me. Absolutely, and so you have introduced the dyslexia screening bill in the UK Parliament. So can you tell me more about this bill, what it entails? Yeah, so you can't manage what you can't measure in government, mm-hmm. and at the moment we simply don't have the figures, and in, down to an individual school not knowing about their pupils, and down of course to individual pupils not knowing if they've got a problem. Um, So I want to see universal screening for dyslexia um, and better teacher training for all neurodiversity. Uh, At the moment in in England, there's only half a day of the initial teacher training, which which goes on neurodiverse conditions. I mean, it's it's extraordinary. And um, every teacher is a teacher of dyslexic kids. 
mm -hmm. uh, because the num because sh the sheer quantity of numbers. And then, uh, so we need universal screening so that people don't have to wait like I and so many others did until later in life, until they're uh, adults. Uh, because then you can get the support packages in, in primary school and we know how to teach people to read, right? The, the, the science on the teaching of reading is now very robust. Yes. And that science works for dyslexic pupils and it works for non-dyslexics. But, but if you don't have the data both to track how things are going overall uh, and for each individual pupil to know their, you know their strengths and weaknesses, you can't possibly proceed. Mm, very important point. And I, I just want to touch on something that I think is very important. What you just said is that the teacher training that doesn't only benefit children with dyslexia. I mean, I've yeah. talked about this on the podcast many times that understanding different ways we work and learn and teaching to that benefits absolutely every single one of the students in the classroom. So having that training is extremely important for teachers and, and yes. it will benefit everyone. Yes. And, you know, People who are neurodiverse think differently. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way we should, that's the approach that we should have. And we know that if you get people who think differently around a table, you get a better decision, you get a better outcome. So that needs to be embraced. And of course, the best schools do this. You know, I, I, I admire the, the best schools who are absolutely brilliant at this. Um, the problem is that it's just far from the norm. And hence the universal need, you know, and making sure that it's fair that that everybody gets access to the support that they need. I think that's incredibly important. So then what you're proposing is to screen every child for dyslexia. And what, what exactly is involved in the screening? What kind of screening are you proposing? Yeah. So at the moment in England, we have a phonics screening test at, uh, in, in the reception year, uh, typically at the age of five. That's good. That's part of what we need to look for. But actually, dyslexia is the gap between your uh, ability to translate the alphabetic code on the page and your ability to understand and uh, and use language so the ability to measure your oral language capability compared to your phonic interpretation if you like uh, that gap is a uh, is important to understanding how an individual child learns you know your reading skills and your language skills are not the same thing yes um, and for um, for somebody who's dyslexic there can often be a big gap between the two. Um, so we need to have assessment of both of those that's age appropriate, starting at the start of primary school. And, you know, there's been this big debate in the dyslexia world. Well, when should we do assessment for dyslexia? Should you do it early? But then you might, some kids might just be slow starters or they might have just had poor teaching in the first year. Or should you do it late? You know, but then you miss the early years opportunity for catch up. The answer is you should you should assess throughout, right? You should assess at the start, age appropriate, of course. And then you should see how each child's doing. Some will catch up with, especially if they get the extra support. Others will continue to find it more difficult, but then they need even more extra support. Um, and that's what needs to happen. And you need to do it both on your reading ability and on your language ability, uh, because you learn different things about each pupil uh, from both of those. So that's what I think needs to happen. Um, the government here is is listening. I have a very good engagement with them, uh, but I'm still going to keep pushing for this on a in, in Parliament to make sure that it gets this approach gets entrenched because you know we can't have full literacy unless you have a proper uh, support for those who find it most difficult to become literate. Definitely, absolutely. And in addition to the fact that it's really important for the child to know if they are dyslexic and to be identified or have other neurodiversities. 
what else is the numbers? Because you said without measurement, we can't change anything in government. So what yeah. will the numbers, how will that help the situation? Well, because then you'll be able to find out where the problems are uh, and measure progress over time, um, both of an individual child and of an, of an institution, you know, of a school. Mm-hmm. Um, that measurement's incredibly important. I know from my time in government that, you know, where there is a paucity of data, there's usually little progress. Uh, you know, here in, in England, it's terrible. You know, the amount of information about this is really, um, is really not good enough. And, and so that, you know, that's the first stop to solving the problem. Yes, absolutely. And in terms of the teacher training, which is a part of yeah. this bill, what are you proposing? Well, I propose that both in initial teacher training and in continuous professional development, there needs to be training in how to, how to assess for uh, neurodiversity and then how to teach. And I mean, this is, this is needed across dyslexia and all the different forms of neurodiversity uh, so that uh, teachers are not just, you know, basing it on what they might have, you know, what they might have self-taught or self-researched, um, but a proper formal training right. um, in how to assess and identify and then also how to teach those with neurodiverse conditions. Fantastic. Because again, as your tutor recognized something in you, yeah. that could easily have been missed. And maybe that tutor read an article or somehow was more aware that there's this difference. And yeah. having that awareness. I know. It's a good question. I should ask him. <laughs> yes. uh, how come he knew that there was a problem? He probably just said it was example. But that's really important. Yeah. We're, we're talking about school, but this bill is not only aimed at education, but also at business. So I was really yeah. happy to read that you want to improve the way businesses consider dyslexic candidates for jobs and to reduce yeah. the barriers of dyslexic people when they are hiring. So this is yeah. very important. And you touched on it a little bit by saying the fact that you felt the shame, which of course impacts a career and impacts uh, the way someone approaches the career. So tell me a little about the barriers that are in business for people who are dyslexic and have other neurodiversities. Yeah. So today we're launching a, an organization called Neurodiversity in Business, and we have uh, over 100 of the biggest companies in the UK signed up. And this is about saying to, to business that uh, you, in your hiring, uh, in your assessment, in your promotion, especially big businesses that have a formalized, highly formalized HR assessment techniques, that you need to assess for somebody's true capability. And that will take into account their neurodiversity, not least because you want diversity of thought in your organization. And increasingly, as you know, computers do the straight line thinking, increasingly the world of work uh, it succeeds on the very human skills of creativity and lateral thinking and making connections, human connections with people that dyslexic people tend to excel in, not least because you need them to mitigate the challenges that you have in, in, in straight line um, thinking. So this is a, a campaign really for businesses to think differently about how they employ and promote people who themselves think differently. There's some amazing employers out there, you know, um, Universal Music proactively recruits people on uh, people who are neurodiverse because of the, because they have an interesting way of thinking about music. Here, you know, GCHQ is famous for recruiting people on the autistic spectrum because they need a particular creative ability to connect patterns because they have incredibly powerful computers to do the to do the logical straight line stuff but they need people whose 
whose brains spot interesting patterns. You know, but they're just two examples. And I'm delighted that more and more companies are signing up to this this agenda. Uh, and I want, you know, that relationship between between schools and business is important as well, so that pupils in education can see that it isn't just your straight line thinking ability. You know, you, you need to assess somebody's overall capability and that pro- you probably can't do that by just chucking out anybody who makes a spelling mistake in an assessment. Mm. And also to understand what those differences are, how people, not just how people work differently, but how they contribute differently to the work that you're doing. As you said, I mean, we have a very multidisciplinary world and we need to look at problems in very different perspectives. And we can only do that if we think differently and we approach a problem differently. So to even begin, it's that understanding of what do these differences mean? Yeah. And so in this campaign, how are you really engaging with the business and how are you promoting it? Well, there's some businesses like Deloitte, for instance, the consultants who have changed their own internal processes and, and, and formalized how you can have an assessment process uh, that works for uh, neurodiversity. And so it's a matter of taking a model like that that works and encouraging the big businesses to put it in place. So that's the sort of technical work, if you like, but it's also a campaign to raise awareness for employers of all types uh, to take this agenda uh, seriously, you know, make sure that in the world of work, you know, my argument is not, this is something that you should do just for social benefit. It's, this is something that you should do because it will benefit your business. Mm-hmm. You know, a decade or so ago, I was engaged in the, in the big drive we had here in the UK for, for women on boards, for diversity on boards, right? And the argument that we put that ultimately has been very successful, not complete yet, but very successful, is that we just looked at the numbers, right? And p- people who had all male boards tended to perform worse in terms of their stock market returns, you know, and... That doesn't surprise me at all because I've never been in a decision-making meeting where uh, where you get a worse decision for having people who come at problems from a different angle. So, yes. so this is about trying to demonstrate to employers the value of employing people who think differently. Mm, absolutely. And dyslexia is very complex and it's hard to identify. I mean, of course, that is very true for a lot of neurodiversity, but let's specifically talk about dyslexia. because It has great assets such as improved creativity, lateral thinking skills. However, it also has challenges. So what do you wish businesses and people in general would know about dyslexia? What did you learn maybe about what it means to be dyslexic? Well, I think that the most important thing for a business who hasn't really considered this before is that you know, the computers can increasingly do the things that dyslexics find difficult, like spelling. But a computer will never be able to, to join thoughts, to think uh, creatively, and to engage with your, with your customers, with other employees, in a way that asks questions that might help you improve the way that you do business, right? And therefore, actively leaning into the uh, the employment of people who are dyslexic or have another neurodiverse condition will help your business, will help you come to, to better decisions and think creatively about how your business can succeed. That's the pitch that we're making. And, and you know, it seems to be going pretty well. Wonderful. Yes, very, very good. And so what about the bill? What is next for the bill? You've presented it to Parliament. What's 
the next step? Um, well, the uh, we're going through complicated parliamentary machinations. The uh, we're expecting a Queen's speech in the next uh, few weeks. You know, so I'll be pushing this bill as a backbencher. But I also, what I'd really love to see is the government pick it up and take it forward as government legislation. That makes the process through Parliament easier. And um, I'm, I'm going to uh, keep the pressure up on the Department for Education to, to pick up this bill and, and run with it and make sure that, you know, their policy agenda, which, you know, I know is aligned to this because they care deeply about literacy and the Secretary of State, Nadeem Zahawi, you know, he arrived in London age nine without a word of English. Now, he's not dyslexic, and but he knows what it is not to be able to read or, in his case, even speak the language and how important that was um, to him personally. And uh, so it's an agenda that's got real momentum. And then there's a third leg, which isn't in the bill because it's hard to do through statute. There's a third leg to the campaign alongside schools and businesses, which, of course, is teaching people to read in the criminal justice system. You know, 50 percent of people in prison in the UK are dyslexic. And the uh, the teaching of reading in prisons is just so important. Now, ultimately, you want to sort that at school. If you want to stop reoffending, one of the best things you can do is teach people to to read whilst they're in prison. Mm, that's very important. And I'm sure those numbers are very similar to other countries in, around the world. So that's definitely yeah. something to pay attention to. That's yeah. great. Hopefully it goes through and hopefully everything uh, it gets approved because it's a win-win. I mean, everything that you've been talking about, it's not only a benefit and a positive thing for people with dyslexia and other neurodiversities, but really it would benefit everyone. So it's a very positive, uh, positive thing that you're doing. So overall, what can people do to help? I mean, audiences of the podcast, both in the UK, but also internationally. I mean, it's definitely an issue that is yeah. very international. Yeah. What, what can people do to help? Well, as it happens, there is an international uh, dyslexia forum, which is mm-hmm. uh, happening in uh, in Sweden next month. So there is a there's an international dimension to this, too. You know, I, the, the single most important thing is voice right is people talking about this and making sure that the online discussion is positive and progressive in this space you know uh, legislators like me need people outside of parliaments of the world making the argument as well to because the more you're pushed to do the thing you want to do anyway the easier it is to get to get traction and you know and governments are busy you know, I know I know what it's like when you're um, sitting in the uh, ministerial chair and there's lots of competing priorities. Uh, so this matters getting policy changed, uh, but it also matters, I think, in terms of changing the culture and the way that we think about neurodiversity. And uh, it is for me the you know, it's the next bridge on the big battle to ensure that we as a society support people to make the most of their life. That's actually what it's all about. Yes, absolutely. And the Neurodiversity Celebration Week is a great, great opportunity to really learn and to celebrate our differences and different ways of learning and working. So it's, yeah. uh, it's wonderful that you're doing this. Yeah, and celebrate, you know, we should celebrate people who think differently. That's what Neurodiversity Celebration Week is all about. That's right. Absolutely. Uh, That's how we can solve complex problems if we can all think that differently and come to it from different angles. Wonderful. Well, at the end of every podcast, I like to ask for a recommendation of something to read or watch that inspires you in this in this field. Is there something that you'd like to share? 
Yeah, um, I would read This is Dyslexia by Kate Griggs. Kate Griggs runs an amazing organization, is all about celebrating dyslexia. Uh, and her book, uh, This is Dyslexia, is an absolutely brilliant description of what it is to be dyslexic and also why that can be a benefit, especially if you get the support that you need. She runs Made by Dyslexia. It's a brilliant charity and, uh, and really makes this positive case for people who think differently. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Well, Matt, I really enjoyed talking to you and hearing more about your experience and also the bill. Thank you very much for sharing on the podcast. Thank you, Kinga. Thank you so much for having me on.